Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to episode two of our brand new general election podcast, the excellently titled, if we may say so ourselves, The North Pole. Do you see what we did there? It's a podcast for the North, about the North, by the North. It's become increasingly clear that our wonderful part of the world is going to be one of the most important areas of the country in deciding what happens in this most important of general elections. And with hundreds of London-based politicians and journalists already making their rare journeys up north, we wanted to bring you some analysis, information, and let's face it, top-notch banter from those of us who cover these areas week in, week out. It's a weekly podcast. We'll be bringing you the latest issues to affect our area every single week. And uh, this week, I'm pleased to say we're in Liverpool, uh, which is where I'm based. I'm Liam Thorpe, political editor of the Liverpool Echo, and very pleased today to be joined by a stellar lineup including Alistair Houghton, who is the editor of the Business Live website, recently launched by Reach PLC, covering businesses right across the country. Uh, Paul Faulkner is a BBC local democracy reporter based with the Lancashire Post and Blackpool Gazette, covering large parts of Lancashire. And Jen Williams, who you will, of course, know, is the politics and investigations editor with the Manchester Evening News, normally joins me in the studio. She's actually on leave this week, but is so committed to the cause that she has got up out of bed early, had her tea and toast, and she's joined us on the line. Hi, Jen. Hello, you're right. So um, we will probably have to start with what I would still consider the biggest news of the campaign so far in terms of shaping what actually might happen with the overall result. And that was the, the recent announcement by Brexit Party leader Nigel Farage that his party will not be standing candidates in 317 Tory-held seats. Uh, there's been a lot of debate and discussion about just how helpful this actually might be to the Tories. Um, and how damaging it might be to Labour. Paul, I'm going to come to you first. You have a very interesting patch with some seats that could really be affected by this. Um, what's your initial take on, on what Farage is proposing? Well, there's certainly a chance that his decision will have a material impact in a handful of seats in Lancashire. I mean, let's not forget every corner of Lancashire voted to leave in the 2016 referendum. I heard you talking in last week's episode about the nuances between the different parts of the wider Greater Manchester and Merseyside areas. There are no such nuances in Lancashire apart from <laughs> apart from degrees of the of the leave vote. Um, so every corner of the county voted to leave. Probably the most vulnerable uh, to a Brexit party onslaught would have been the most marginal seat in the whole county, which is Pendle. Now, that's been held by Andrew Stevenson since 2010. He has a 1,200 majority from 2017, but it was Labour for decades before he took it over in 2010. And also it has one of the highest leave votes in Lancashire, 63%. It's 28th on the Labour target list. Similarly, Blackpool North and Cleveland's a 2,000 majority held by the uh, government minister Paul Maynard. Now, Blackpool as a whole was the most leave voting area of the whole of Lancashire. Uh, 67% voted out. And the bit of that Blackpool North and Cleveland's constituency that extends up into wire, the leave vote was only a few points less than that. It's just about in the top 50 Labour target seats as well. So I think the incumbents there will definitely be pleased, to say the least, by Nigel Farage's decision. The question, of course, that every Everybody's 
speculating on, which I'll add my voice to now, is the effect that this will have on leave voting Labour held seats. Yeah. Like Blackpool South. Well, I was just going to say for that, you've only got to look a bit further down the file coast, down to Blackpool South. Not desperately marginal there for Gordon Marsden. 2,000, is it? Two and a half thousand uh, majority from 2017, but he has held the seat for over 25 years. It's just outside the top 40 Tory target seats. It'd take a 3.6% swing to snatch it. Now, UKIP uh, didn't perform particularly well in 2017, but that was post-referendum. And although it's difficult to think back to that 2017 election now, Brexit didn't play as big a part as as you and may... that frustration about Brexit not happening was, was not as palpable, was no, it? No, no. It was almost, to, to coin a phrase, it was almost like Brexit was done and it was no longer the issue. But if you look back to 2015 in the Blackpool South constituency, UKIP took a 17% share of the vote and if you transpose that over to potential votes for the Brexit party then yes it, it's certainly vulnerable. Um, I think one of the most interesting things that I heard this week um, was what the Brexit party candidate or the former Brexit party candidate for Pendle said when he was stood down by Nigel Farage he said he'd been inundated with calls from people uh, decrying the fact that they weren't going to be able to vote for a Brexit party candidate but he then went on you'd expect him to say that obviously but he then went on to say that people were now left with Boris Johnson's soft Brexit now of course not many Remainers would characterise Boris Johnson's deal as a soft Brexit but if that is how you assess it then the question is, where do you go politically? No obvious protest vote. Is your protest vote to stay at home? And what kind of, a, what kind of effect will that have? I mean, that's a really interesting point. And, and Jen, for, I'd say for both our regions, um, there's that other issue of there's a lot of places where perhaps people were gearing up to vote for the Brexit party who may have actually voted traditionally for Labour, but they just can't bring themselves to vote Conservative. Where do they go? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, looking at it from the Greater Manchester perspective first, I mean... Um, 23 out of 27 of our seats voted Labour in the 2017 election. So actually it makes the Brexit Party standing down in incumbent Tory seats doesn't make a huge amount of difference to our map, arguably. Um, I think somewhere like Bolton West, um, where you've got a very leave-leaning Conservative incumbent with a majority of under a 1,000, um, I think you know the Brexit Party not standing probably... Is is pretty helpful potentially to Chris Green in terms of yeah and I mean UKIP UKIP had about fifteen percent of the vote in Bolton West in in twenty fifteen kind of going on a, on a sort of similar analysis assuming twenty seventeen you know you didn't see much uh, much movement on, on on UKIP at that point because it wasn't a Brexit election um, but if you look back to twenty fifteen it was very marginal Chris Green only just inched it um, and you had that chunky UKIP vote. So, you know, not having a Nigel Farage candidate this time in a seat like that is 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 probably going to be helpful for Chris Green. Similarly, if you look at um, the other three Conservative seats in Greater Manchester that are all in Remain-leaning areas, uh, like Hazel Grove, Cheadle, uh, Altrincham and uh, Sale West, the Lib Dems will be, you know, the Lib Dems will be hoping to take Hazel Grove and Cheadle from the Conservatives on the back of a Remain uh, backlash. And of course, if the Leave vote isn't split between the Conservatives and the Brexit Party there, then again, it's not particularly helpful to the Liberal Democrats. So in the minority of seats that we've got in Greater Manchester where um, where this is relevant, um, then yes, I think it will be helpful uh, to to the Conservatives. But of course, 
that doesn't account for most of our seats and it doesn't account for a great many seats across uh, the northwest and i think and, and the north in general um and talking to one labor candidate sort of incumbent uh, running to retake their seat earlier on they were saying overall their view was that uh, the brexit party choosing to continue standing in these labor seats was going to be probably more helpful for labor um because it was gonna you know it is going to split that that leave vote so i think from chatting to people the kind of there doesn't seem to be necessarily a broad agreement with nigel farage's claim that this is going to destroy the labor party in the north actually these these are these are labor seats many of them are labor seats which the conservatives need to take and he is still standing in those seats so um because of course the, i suppose the other issue is that the tories are the ones that re, that need the majority the most isn't it nobody else is going to work with them whereas there is still the, the obviously the suggestion that whether it's labor smp perhaps even the lib dems could work together it's it's tories need to take seats from labor tories need to take seats from labor and some of these seats that they will need to take in order to get a majority or that they are probably going to need to take in order to get a majority are quite tough asks so if you throw Nigel Farage into the mix as well, splitting that uh, that leave-leaning vote in some of those seats, it is not particularly helpful to the Conservatives. So it's a kind of, you know, it, I think what Nigel Farage has done is not unhelpful for the Conservatives. It's not as helpful but as I'm some sure might they would have brought. It's not as helpful as some might think. I, I, I thought it was quite funny how there was this big fanfare about it all happening and, and how it was going to, uh, you know, sort of destroy Labour. And then the next day the Tories were like, can you just... Can you just not have anyone standing, please? <laughs> yeah, we're grateful for yeah. this, but can you also just get rid of the, the other half of the, the, the six yeah. that you're going to have? And he, and he was like, well, no, um, because, you know, then then he is sort of politically pointless, isn't he? Uh, Alistair, um, you, you come at this from a different perspective with, you, with your business head on. Brexit is obviously going to have a huge impact on this, this, this election, but a lot of that is people around people who voted for Brexit. What about the business community? How are they feeling about the Brexit themes of this election, and is it is it is it helpful to them to have you know Brexit Party sort of dictating the the, the way things are going to go? I think the big problem for business uh, remains uncertainty. I think as you know, Paul was saying earlier on, twenty seventeen, it felt like this is all a done deal. We all knew Brexit was going to happen, and it was just a matter of of, of working it out and uh, dotting the i's and crossing the t's, putting it in the microwave oven ready. Absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah, the easiest deal in the world, and it's just kept uh, kept going on and on um, and um, we we you know speak to, to businesses you know right across the north and this fear of of uncertainty of just not knowing what's going to happen has been the biggest problem and because this is you know this is such a marginal election things are so tight we still uh, don't know what's going to happen and 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 there's no particular clear uh, the path to any kind of brexit at the moment because we, we there's no favourites here. Do you think that makes them, you know, Boris Johnson's big pitch is, we've, as he keeps rather annoyingly saying, we've got this deal ready to go in the oven, whatever the hell that means. But obviously the Tories' big pitch is get Brexit done, get it done early. Is, can you see businesses leaning towards that as, as he appears to be the one who will get it done most quickly, even if it is in his style? 
We've certainly had a lot of, of people saying uh, something along the lines of "we just need certainty, so just get it done." Um, whether it's uh, whether it's no deal or whether it's a deal, we we just need to know what's happening. Um, the impression I'm getting, though, I think, is that some of that that bullishness is is um, is, is disappearing a little bit. And if you look particularly at the automotive sector, for example, which has a couple of sort of key nodes in the north, if you like, you've got some Nissan in Sunderland and uh, all the supply chain around that. Uh, you've got Jaguar Land Rover and Vauxhall then um, in and around sort of. Uh, Merseyside, um, and the, 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 that industry is absolutely terrified about a no deal and what a no deal could mean. Um, those just-in-time supply chains would just be so badly disrupted by any disruption at all in EU trade, they just can't cope with um, with a no deal. And there's just so many thousands of people and so many families um, who are whose interests are tied up in the automotive sector, and of course, you know, that will that will factor into their votes. Absolutely. So um, we are a northern podcast and we're obviously covering northern issues. Um, and it's, I suppose I should talk a little bit about our Power Up the North campaign, which, much like this podcast, went across various different um, news organisations, including ourselves at Reach PLC um, and various others, JPI Media, others involved. Um, and the, the idea behind it is that we speak with one voice and we tell government, whoever that government might be, on December the 13th, that the North has been given a pretty bad deal over the years, decades of underinvestment and and inequality in, in many in many ways. Uh, and of course, we, we, we did a joint front page um, with various titles, which was shown on Newsnight, which was great, really getting our message across. Jen, you were, of course, on Newsnight to uh, to promote that excellently, I might add. And, uh, and, and then, you know, without sort of without any meaning to we uh we got a real good example of this north south debate and that came along with the the floods that we've seen in the sheffield uh yorkshire doncaster areas like that um jeremy corbyn had one message uh about the north south divide and about the different reactions of conservative governments and this was what he said just the other day boris johnson waited five days before calling a cobra meeting and only after I wrote to him demanding it in the first place. We now need a guarantee from the government that the Belwyn money, the Belwyn formula money, is made immediately available to all the local authorities in areas affected by the floods. Again, back in 2014, David Cameron vowed we will build a more resilient country for the future. Instead, under the Tories, Frontline flood response and environment agency staff have been slashed by a fifth and a fire and rescue service by nearly a quarter. So here we are again. <clears throat> we are in the midst of a climate and environmental emergency. Funding flood defences and emergency responders is an absolute priority. It's just plain common sense. And that is what a Labour government will deliver. Just plain common sense to help people in an emergency to get through what is the most traumatic and disastrous time of their lives. So that's the, La the Labour leader basically making the point that if this was in a very sort of Tory safe um, shire type county, then the reaction would have been much quicker and much more robust from the government. Um, Jen, is he right? Um, I think it's difficult not to kind of be left with an impression um, of a kind of uh, of a Tory response that was very slow, which then makes you start to wonder 
would it have been that slow had it been in Boris Johnson's backyard, for example, if somebody had died uh, in Uxbridge? And it sounds like um, perhaps a little bit of a crass point. But the the point that Jeremy Corbyn is making, um, for me, underlined how flat-footed some of the Conservative communication strategy has been so far, um, especially around yeah. sort of... Uh, northern specific issues such as this and the 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 fact that although he did do that good bit of mopping he did do that that fantastic bit of mopping yeah um i think that's all he he um the the fact that they allowed the headlines at the back end of the weekend to be this is not a national emergency on the front page of the Yorkshire Post. And not only that they, they allowed that to be the headline, but then they also gave Jeremy Corbyn enough time and enough space to write to them and demand a COBRA meeting. And then they had a COBRA meeting, which just, yeah, it. it made yeah, it look as though Labour had kind of bounced them into it. I, it just seems yeah. very strange that nobody in Tory HQ had kind of thought, well, we're going to need to act and act decisively and act quickly here. We need to be there on the ground. We need to make it absolutely clear that we care about this. So if before anybody has the chance to suggest that we don't care about these areas as much as our own Tory heartlands, we're in there and then, you know, there's there's no problem. And actually, I've just seen Boris Johnson on Sky earlier on in Yorkshire, but I don't think he'd actually been there up until that point. And this has now been going on for days and days and days and days. So I just find it... I just find it a little bit curious, to be honest, that these are it happens. These floods happen to coincide with many of the kind of places that the Tories want to be appealing to, and yet they were so slow off the mark. It just seems very strange. Very short-sighted, and I just saw today uh, one of the ITV journalists, and this, this is a real bugbear of mine as a regional journalist, saying that the Prime Minister is going up to the Fish Lake area, and he is doing one pooled interview with no regional or local journalist which I just find utterly remarkable. You, you might remember Theresa May made similar mistakes in the 2017 campaign and local newspapers quite rightly called her out on it for, for just a really bizarre strategy of not engaging with the journalists on the ground. Um, I, and, you know, that, that has always been a, a bugbear of mine. I just wanted to, to raise that. Very sanitised, um, isn't it? Yeah, it's very sanitised. It's very sanitised. I also think that, um, I mean, we, we've actually seen this previously not all that long ago in Greater Manchester, not during an election season when we had the um, the Moors fires in Saddleworth and there was a similar kind of... Uh, Felt like what felt like quite a slow response, and actually, it took Greater Manchester a long time to get the money back from government um, for the for the uh, emergency effort around that, which is you're supposed to get reimbursed um, by central government for it. And in fact, at one point, there was even a question about whether Greater Manchester were going to have to pay for the army itself. Um, and I think the other thing that the sort of slow response on this kind of highlights. To voters in places like Yorkshire is the cuts that their public services have experienced. Absolutely. Well, Doncaster Council's coming for a bit of a bit of flack, hasn't it? But then others have pointed out that actually their their budgets have been severed over the last ten years, so that, that incidents like this become increasingly difficult to respond to. Yeah, and it points up an issue that the Conservatives probably don't want to flag to Labour voters in in those areas. And of course, it's allowed Jeremy Corbyn to come out and make points about the Environment Agency uh, suffering cuts. And these are all issues that the Conservatives would rather not have highlighted in a Labour area. Now, I mean, the Conservatives don't literally control whether it's going to rain or not, but they control the, whether they respond to it quickly. And as I say, that's what I'm kind of slightly puzzled by. Um, Paul, you from an area that has suffered with some flooding in its time that it's safe to say in, in, in various parts um as as you know you've probably seen therefore the the, the damage and the the huge sort of human cost that can happen there is is that been an issue there in Lancashire in the past with that kind of like 
divide and, and not feeling that the government takes them as a priority, do you think? I don't necessarily think there's political play immediately with with flooding events, unless, of course, they happen to happen in the middle of an election campaign, <laughs> as we've seen, sadly, for, for the people of Yorkshire. Um, Croston uh, in Chorley in central Lancashire was very badly flooded after Storm Desmond in 2015. You had the RAF Chinooks in dropping sandbags, trying to build the, uh, the, the riverbank back up there. People want a response. They want help in that moment. And they ask the political questions later. And then very often, when later comes, it's the politicians themselves that are asking the political questions. The public just want the help that they need to make sure that that doesn't happen to them again. I've, I've not seen huge amounts of evidence in Lancashire that they lay the blame at the door of a particular political party. It's more at the door of the authorities because you haven't helped us and we're in this mess. I guess that that's yeah that's, that makes Jen's point even more interesting, really, that, that we are in an election cycle and it's... It is remarkable that, that the response has been so poor. Well, elections are all about reacting to unexpected events, aren't they? Now, obviously, you don't imagine that an unexpected event is going to be a natural disaster. But if it is, you still react to it. Yeah, you get out there not six days later. Moving on to other northern issues, we've got to talk about HS2. As many people will have seen this week, um, a leaked report that eventually was came out and was confirmed, looking into the viability of HS2 despite soaring costs, um, has has basically said that it should go ahead and, uh, crucially for us, that it will benefit the North the most. Um, I, see, I saw quite a lot of write-ups in the national press which were rather dismissive of, of this, talked about soaring costs, you know, uh, riddled with, with issues, which, okay, that is true, but it didn't focus as much on the fact that this is going to be an enormous boost for our region. I spoke to Steve Rotherham, the Metro Mayor of Liverpool City region, earlier in the week, and he said it was it was great news. He was very welcoming of it. However, he had a couple of caveats, one which I'm sure we've heard before, and, and Jen certainly will have heard it from Andy Burnham, which is that it's it has to happen alongside Northern Powerhouse Rail, yes. um, which, of course, for those who don't know, will we'll link up the Liverpool City region to Manchester and onto Leeds via you know via HS2 for a you know a, and could revolutionise the, the northern economy. The other point that was made to me by Steve's office, which was which was interesting actually, was that basically they want it to be built from both ends at the same time. So start building in, in London and start building in the north at the same time and kind of move inwards. A, because that will be a lot quicker. B, it, they believe it should bring costs down. But more importantly, they think that it immediately starts that stimulation of the northern economy in terms of local supply chain yeah. and and those kind of investments so Alistair I wanted to get your reaction on HS2 you've written a lot about this what was the what was the response like to that leaked report because I think a lot of people thought when Boris Johnson called for a review that it was the first step towards canning what is a difficult political issue for him yeah the mood music uh, made it sound as though HS2 was going to be abandoned didn't it yeah. so I think um, what's interesting uh, you're right is, is that the north and the business community in the north in particular um, has long been extremely supportive of HS2 and high-speed rail uh, more generally I find it interesting that in the north HS2 can often seem very abstract and distant but if you ever find yourself in London and walking to Euston, you can see immediately that the work has already started and it already it already really feels like, like a big thing, whatever your views on it are. So I, I think Northern business leaders would very much agree with that point that, that Steve Rotherham and others have made that we need to get to need to get work started up here. So I, th I think you know it, it was a positive reaction. I also think you're very right in what you say about Northern powerhouse rail as well. That um, it has to be both, doesn't it? 
it does it does i mean you know for all the um, the benefits that you you can see from having the leeds and manchester lines going into london having those cross northern links would be amazing we all we all know we've all experienced quite how bad those cross northern links are trying to get for example from liverpool to hull from the, across the great ports of the north is just slow and painful so having a high speed system that would actually bring um a proper decent travel experience from from the northwest across Yorkshire, across to, to Hull, but also then further on to Sunderland, uh, Newcastle as well would just be amazing. And having been on holiday in Italy this year and seen just how normal high speed rail is there, to how good the services are, it would be amazing, wouldn't it, to have something in the north? And I, I think the voice of business in the north certainly would be behind that. You just crowbarred in there. You had a cheeky holiday in Italy there like that. I might have thrown that one in. I thought you were going to say Hull for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> he does holiday in Hull quite a lot, actually. Not that there would be anything wrong with that. <laughs> and also, anyone who wants a very sort of clear and emotional depiction of just how difficult it is to get along the route that would be Northern Powers Rail now, uh, we sent one of our local democracy reporters, Nick Tyrrell, I don't know what he did to deserve this, we asked him to spend the day, and it was a day, trying to travel from Liverpool to Hull and back on the connected services. And um, I think it's safe to say it, it broke him emotionally. Uh, it took him about 12 hours. Um, he, he put a lot of a lot of sandwiches through on expenses, put it that way. Um, but that's that's you know that's how how difficult that journey is. I'm off to Hull on Friday. I wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> clear the day, clear the day. Um, Jen, you, you obviously written about a lot about trains in your time. Would you would you agree with that assessment that the Northern Powerhouse Rail section is is almost as important as, as HS2 happening as well for our region? Yeah, and I think I, I also think it's probably as a concept more popular with the public as well because there's a kind of persistent view that um, although business won't agree with this. Northern leaders won't agree with it. I think there's a kind of persistent view that building HS2 essentially will um, suck a load of resources into London, whereas we're talking about, uh, you know, Northern Paris Rail is kind of um, intra intra-northern cities and as you just said just attempting to get between those places is just I think you know most people who are using London transport systems on a day-to-day -day basis have probably don't have much concept of actually how difficult um that is I think I think is it HS2 is interesting and I think uh NPR as well because it's a kind of good demonstration of this uneasy dance that the conservatives have been doing over the last few months around you know, are they the party of economic responsibility and setting themselves up as as the kind of um, clear alternative to Labour wildly throwing money around? Um, or are they going to be this kind of, you know, big, generous, profligate, uh, you know, offer to the north where they One say we're going to build, everyone. yeah, we're going to build billions of pounds worth of new infrastructure links? And I think HS2 is an interesting example of that because the review effectively um, kicked it down the road. Um, and then we had leaks that suggested that um, that the part of the northern leg of it up to Leeds was going to be scrapped, um, and then suspicions maybe that, that that Boris Johnson was trying to divide the north in some respects by saying we'll just do the Manchester to Leeds part a bit of NPR, and no mention of Merseyside. Um, and now That's suddenly we have we have this uh, yeah now suddenly we have this Times front page saying that. Um, Actually, HS2 will be a good thing, despite the fact that it's, you know, the, the cost has gone above £80 billion. And if you look at the tone of that Times article, um, it, it could have gone in on the fact that the cost has gone up, but actually it went in on the fact that it would be beneficial to the North, which clearly suggests some kind of briefing from somebody who wants to who wants to make that argument. Um, equally, when, when Sajid Javid was in Manchester 
last week. Uh, he was speaking here at the same time as John McDonald was speaking on Merseyside, and John McDonald was very much the kind of big placard-waving rally. We're going to spend £400 billion. Pounds. We're going to spend all this money on infrastructure. And Sajid Javid, again, was kind of doing this kind of uneasy dance of, oh, well, we're going to borrow an extra £20 billion a year, but only if borrowing costs are uh, remain low. And we're not like Labour. We're not profligate. We, we can be trusted. But also, we might give you a new, new railway line. And it all felt like a kind of like a little bit lukewarm so because it's almost like they're trying to yeah i mean they're trying to play to both crowds right um and i think that um it will be very interesting to see what actually makes it into the conservative party manifesto when that materializes even if it's delayed as i believe it's going to be Mm. and possibly released just just a after i think maybe a couple of weeks before the election but we'll we'll wait and see Uh, now conscious of time we're going to very quickly move on to talk about Remain alliances and and the Liberal Democrats. Um, obviously, Joe Swinson is is going to be a, a pivotal character in in this election. And here she is talking about whether she would consider working with Jeremy Corbyn. I am absolutely categorically ruling out Liberal Democrat votes putting Jeremy Corbyn into number ten. And let me tell you why. On so many grounds, Jeremy Corbyn is not fit for the job of Prime Minister. On the biggest issue of the day, he has prevaricated and will not give a straight answer. Even now, if you ask him whether he is remain or leave, he will not tell you how he would vote. His plans for the economy would take us back to the 1970s. I believe he would be a threat to our national security. I don't fancy the idea of Jeremy Corbyn uh, as Prime Minister. The first task of which a Prime Minister has to do is write instructions to uh, commanders uh, in our uh, submarine fleet. Um, so pretty clear there that um, Joe Swinton is not wanting to work with Jeremy Corbyn at, at any cost. She doesn't fit, think that he's fit to be prime minister. And, and to be honest, from the Labour side, it's been pretty clear back. Um, in your neck of the woods, Paul, is is this concept of a, of a Remain alliance alive? Uh, obviously, we've got the Lib Dems and the Greens, but in, in terms of a, a Leave alliance, it seems to be alive and well. What's the, the idea of a Remain alliance on the on the ground? Is it even approaching happening? Not really um, approaching happening, nor potentially having any impact really because the Liberal Democrats don't hold any seats in Lancashire currently. They're not second in any seats currently. Uh, There was one Liberal Democrat um, MP in Burnley between 2010 and 2015 under the coalition, but it certainly doesn't feel like a particularly live issue in Lancashire. The promises about who'll work with who before polling day are always <laughs> always got to be caveated by the reality of when you wake up on the 13th of December in this case and what the electoral maths look like so I suppose anything could happen nationwide but certainly not a particularly live issue in Lancashire. I just wonder whether this election is setting a precedent for deals between the parties on a regular basis in, in, in future elections because obviously there's a difference between tactical voting which is the individual's choice to, to do that research and to make that choice and that choice being taken for them in that the party that they actually would like to vote for is not on the ballot paper. I think um, just straying slightly away from the north um, for a second there was big news last night that um, in Canterbury which is obviously a, a very very tightly held Labour held marginal uh, with Rosie Duffield, that Tim Walker, the Liberal Democrat candidate, had made the personal decision to stand aside um, in, in favour to back the Remain supporting Labour MP. Um, I, I was I was following this on social media, and a lot of Liberal Democrats were instantly saying, "Great move!" You know, even non-Liberal Democrats saying, "Very very brave move." Somebody's kind of 
taken the, the, the you know taken things into their own hands when it comes to Labour and the Lib Dems. Then shortly afterwards, we hear Lib Dem HQ saying that they're actually going to field another candidate. I think it was Paul Brand um, from ITV saying that locally that decision went down very badly, and actually none of the the, the sort of verified potential Lib Dem replacements were prepared to stand. I got a bit of flack from some Lib Dems by saying I think this was a really poor call, but they were making, the, I guess, the fair point that Labour haven't given any ground either. However, my point was that this could have been the moment that kind of, you know, banged their heads together for a potential Remain Alliance to kind of start to do some do something. Um, Jen, what's your, what was your take on, on that situation and how you see Labour and the Lib Dems potentially working or not working together? Um, well, I think in, I mean, if you follow the kind of thinking of Jeremy Corbyn supporters, it's, you know, it would be easy to think, to be honest, that Labour hate the Liberal Democrats more than they hate the Conservatives quite often. There's a really kind of visceral hatred there. And that's certainly the case in in Manchester uh, on the ground here. I was talking to a Lib Dem earlier on about the situation in Canterbury and they were saying, well, you know, why are Labour standing in Richmond Park in London? If they just stood uh, just outside London, if Labour stood down from there, you know, that would give us a clear shot at it, but they're not doing that either. Uh, their view, and I think that this kind of makes a degree of sense, is that anywhere where this is potentially going to happen is going to have to be on a really, really local basis. It's not going to be part of a kind of na uh, national strategy. They, they they were saying as well that, you know, there have been previous approaches by the Liberal Democrats to Labour, uh, you know, not in the last few weeks or perhaps even few months, but the kind of broad point being that if you're going to get into number 10, you may well need our help. And that hadn't really got anywhere. Since then, Jo Swinson has been absolutely adamant that she won't be helping Jeremy Corbyn into number 10. Equally, you've got this huge amount of antagonism on the Labour side towards the Liberal Democrats. It's kind of difficult. You know, they, they have... They've pretty much painted themselves into a corner on a, on a on a national basis when it comes to any kind of pact. What whether something, you know, what happens after the election? We don't know what the maths will be. We don't know what kind of deals will be done. But I think during the campaign itself, yeah, it's no possible. To see, well, it's possible <laughs> to see it on a local level that you might see another situation like Canterbury where somebody stands down and it's after nominations closed, and then there's nothing that anybody can do about it. Um, but yeah, it's I, I, it's hard to see it happening at a national level. Um, Alison, to bring you back in, of course, a, a, there'll be a lot of businesses out there, and I think I saw um, I was chatting to Frank McKenna, who's the, uh, the head of um, the business in, uh, lobbying firm Downtown in Business, who want to see some kind of Remain pact, and he was sort of saying he wants Labour and Lib Dems to just sort it out, put the differences aside, and, and work together towards a you know a, a more Remainy government. Um, is, is that something that you're hearing from businesses who? who not only want certainty but actually want to stay in the EU for their own good. It comes down to certainty. Uh, again, as I was saying earlier on, it's, it's it's that uncertainty issue that troubles businesses more. And, yeah, you, you can see the, the idea of having a more formal Remain Alliance being a, being an attractive option. Um, Especially for people who, who trade with Europe, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, look at the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders, for example, one of the organisations who've warned about you know, a catastrophic no-deal Brexit. And it goes way beyond now from a business point of view, leave or remain. A businesses I find now, don't, or business leaders, don't necessarily want to talk about what their views are on leave and remain. It's about getting a sensible trading structure um, in place that will survive for the future. So you can see the attractiveness of this, but 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 as as yeah, and as as you know as as Jen and Paul have, have said, what what is actually happening? What does it actually mean? Is this a national strategy or not? 
Thank you very much to my guests, Paul Faulkner, uh, BBC Local Democracy Reporter in Lancashire, Alistair Houghton, who is a Business Live editor, and Jen Williams, who um, can now go back to her day off, uh, Politics and Investigations Editor at the, at the Manchester Evening News. Uh, and just to say, we'll be back next week, where we will have obviously written a potential script and then torn it all up when we try and surmise what the, uh, the, the madness of the next week of election campaigning. Uh, this was the North Pole, and thank you very much for joining us.